I believe it was around the 20th century that there was an international fair held in Europe and contests were given for the best display, the best machine. And there was one very impressive machine in this great industrial era. It was a, sm- a machine that had hundreds of wheels and cogs, gears and belts, lights and whistles, everything moving in perfect synchronization, lighting up, making noise. It was impressive. When it was turned on, people would stop looking at other sites and displays and would come and view this amazing machine. Finally, someone asked the inventor who was standing there, quite proud of his creation, what does it do? He said, oh, it doesn't do anything. It just runs beautifully, doesn't it? And it did absolutely nothing. But it was impressive. I'm impressed with the way God controls the world in perfect synchronization. But he also accomplishes something when he does it. And there's no better display of this than in the birth of Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the gospel according to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we want to read the story. What an amazing adventure this is. The story of being in the right place at the right time. We read in Luke 2, verse 1, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken over the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to be registered. It sounds simple, doesn't it? The decree of a human king. This particular king, Caesar Augustus, reigned from about 31 uh, BC to roughly 14 AD. He was also called Octavian. Was given the name Augustus in around 29 AD because he was thought to be divine. And the name Augustus means exalted. He was indeed a powerful king, the great nephew, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And in his reign, he did pretty much what he wanted to do. Under his control was a smaller tyrant king by the name of Herod, who was ruling the Roman Empire in the vicinity of what was called at that time uh, by some the Holy Land, later to be called by others Palestine. It was the land of Judea, of those difficult people who seemed to have a mind of their own. And Herod was always having problems. Not exactly sure what the offense was, but Caesar Augustus got upset with Herod and started treating him not as a friend, but as a vassal. To demonstrate his displeasure, among other things, he ordered that a census should be taken. Now this indeed was inconvenient. 
He knew that it would make Herod look weak and unpopular. Thus, he ordered the census. It had a purpose. Its purpose was military as far as Rome was concerned because they would register those who were supposed to serve. But it also had a purpose for future taxation, although it took almost 10 years before this particular census was used for the poll tax. Quirinius, who was also governor at the time, actually served two different administrations in this particular land. This happened to be, as the scripture says, the first census that was taken during his first particular rule. And here was the gist of it. To keep order, everyone had to go to their own hometown, that is their ancestral town. They had to know something of their forefathers. And they had to go back to the origination of their particular line and their hometown, their own city. There they would be registered. Now this would be inconvenient. It was a harsh regulation. People hated the thought. For the Jews, this was just another display uh, and a symbol of their great distaste for Roman oppression. But they still had to obey. It was an imperial edict. And it affected everybody's life. That, indeed, was the way Rome worked. Just to remind you who was in control. You cannot miss the fact that Luke, who wrote his gospel with great intentionality and told us in chapter 1 that he studied and researched and ordered things with a purpose goal, a goal in mind, you cannot miss the fact that he introduces to us the most powerful king in the world before he introduces to us the most powerful king in the world. Here is... Caesar Augustus, and his decree had an amazing impact. We read about it in verse 3. Everyone, Jew, Gentile alike, everyone had to go to their town of their ancestors and go through this registration. So for a young peasant couple living in the north, in the land of Galilee, Israel was divided into three major sections, the northern region called the Galilee, the middle section called Samaria, and the southern section called Judea. Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth in the Galilee, a poor couple, basically totally unknown, helpless pawns in the midst of the powerful kingdom of Rome. And for them, for them, the impact was amazing. It'd be about a three-day trip, 80 miles, over mountainous, mountainous terrain, a miserable journey, to be sure. What made matters worse, Mary had to go. According to one of the rules that Rome had established, every woman over 12 had to be enrolled as well. But more than that, Mary was married. 
This is where it gets a little difficult. You might remember last week that when the angel spoke to Mary about the fact that she was going to have a child, Joseph didn't understand and was going to divorce her until an angel spoke to him. And once the angel spoke to him, who said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, he did so immediately. And the last verse of Matthew 1 tells us that they were married, but they did not come together physically until the Christ child was born. It was a quick marriage. Everyone in town knew about the engagement. Everyone in town knew about the shotgun wedding. And the gossip was running hot and fast. But Mary had to go. She was of the house of David. Joseph was of the house of David. Verse 4 tells us. So they went up from the town of Nazareth. Now we've said this before, but in case this might be new to you, they're in the north traveling south, yet the scripture says they went up. That's because when you go toward Jerusalem, you always go up. It is a higher elevated country, but Jerusalem, no matter where you are, you're going up to that great area. And Bethlehem was merely five miles south of Jerusalem. So up they went from the north to the south, from the town of Nazareth, from Galilee to Judea, the Roman name given to the southern area, once occupied by the tribe of Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of David. And Luke knew this. This was Israel's greatest king. So we've got something of a display of the kings. Rome's greatest king, ordering. And a young couple going to the town of Israel's greatest king, David. Because they belonged to his house. And they were of his line. And they had to go. I'm sure Mary was reluctant to leave at such an hour like this. Only something of legal necessity would force her to undertake such a tedious journey when she was, and I love the way the authorized translation has it, she was great with child. Her third trimester, close to delivering. I mean, what mother would want to leave on a long 80-mile journey over the mountains on a donkey wonky, walking some Not knowing what's going to happen. Every fear of any expectant mother at such a time like that would have been Mary's problem. I think they stopped often as they were going from the north to the south. It was a long trip. You say, well, weren't there caravans going? Groups of people traveling from the north to the south because they too had to register. I'm sure there were, in fact. And I'd never thought about this before. Joseph's parents were of the house of David and so were Mary's. They were traveling too. But I don't think they were traveling together. How sad was that? On the other hand, getting away from the gossip that would have been going around Nazareth wouldn't have been a bad idea. Maybe Mary was quick to say, you're going, I'm going. 
I'm not staying around in this place alone. Timing could not have been worse. This all seems wrong. Everything is going against them. How in the world did they sustain themselves, not only for this journey, but for life that they had to experience in a small town? The answer? The word of God. That has to be it. Remember what was said to Mary by the angel? Let me just refresh your memory. When the angel came to Mary, he said in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, the Lord is with you. That's encouraging. In verse 31, you are going to be with child. It's going to be a boy, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will also be called the Son of the Most High and the Son of God. And Mary understood from Gabriel that indeed she was carrying Israel's future Messiah. God will give to him David's throne. As predicted, way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, to David it was said, your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. And Messiah will come from you, David, and will sit on your throne. And he will reign forever. To Joseph, the angel said, not only will his name be called Jesus Savior, but his name will be called Emmanuel. And I give you the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. A virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? To, to Mary, the angel said, the Lord is with you. To Joseph, the angel said, God is with you. And when you have that type of encouragement, you can go forward. And finally, the angel said to Mary, this is Luke 1 and verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Say that with me. Nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe it? Oh, that's easy to believe until you're asked, to bear a child without any human involvement and bear the criticism and walk the journey. But they were sustained by the word of God. And the proof that the word of God was true, the proof was in the pregnancy, right? I mean, how do you know God's word is true? Mary would say, look, God's word is true. The proof is in the pregnancy. What keeps you and I going when life gets hard? When we're called by this world to do things that we don't necessarily want to do, we feel the oppression, we feel the, like we don't have the freedom that we would like to enjoy, everything seems to be against us. What sustains us through the perils of life? It is, my friend, the word of God. The promises of Almighty God. I was reading through Psalm 119 recently and I came across a few verses that I thought are the kind of verses that Mary and Joseph would have enjoyed reading. 
Psalm 119 is filled with all kinds of verses. I'm just going to keep talking until they come up. There they are. How about this one? I weep with sorrow. You ever been there? But your word encourages me. The tears that Mary must have shed and the time she must have gone back to Isaiah and to the word given to her by Gabriel. The word, a holy word of God. Or how about this one? Your promise revives me. It comforts me in all my troubles. Yes, everybody may be against me, but God is with me. And God is for me. And therefore, I can go forward. Or how about this one? Verse 89. Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. The word of God is done. It's, not, it's complete. It's not being revised. It's not being rewritten. It's not being adjusted to meet the times. The word of God is settled. Isn't it great to have something that is settled like a rock? We read in Psalm 105, and I'm sure many of you know this, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Keep walking. But I don't know what's going to happen ahead. Keep walking. For God wants us in Bethlehem. Scripture tells us in Psalm 119, 143, as pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. That's Mary and Joseph. And then maybe this one, verse 151, but you were near, O Lord. You were near. How is God near? He's near to us in his word. Well, that's not the only way, but that's how he draws near. That's how his felt presence is sensed. That's how we communicate with him. We are always with him, but he draws near in his word. And all of your commandments, they are true. Think about it. There was a real challenge to, to validate this whole thing of the birth of the Messiah. After all, the prophet said Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem and Mary is hanging out in Nazareth with probably not much of a desire to go anywhere. And not only that, who is going to think that these peasants, these nobodies, have enough royalty in them to bring forth the Messiah? So God says, I'll take care of two problems with one movement, a heathen king's decree, so that when they get to Bethlehem, they are registered clearly of the house of David, as was predicted by Samuel. And the edict gets them to the place where the child needs to be born. You see, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind 
the frowning edict of a king. Behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. One of the greatest verses, lyrics in all hymnology, written by William Cowper. And behind this frowning providence of God that took them on a horrible trip all the way to Bethlehem is the smiling face of God who, is says, who says, I'm, synch I'm synchronizing all of this perfectly so that it will happen the right place at the right time. And that's exactly what takes place. So we've got this edict of a heathen king, and now we have the birth of a holy king. Isn't it interesting as Luke brings in the contrast of the greatest king of Rome, Augustus, the greatest king of Israel, David, and the greatest king of the world, Jesus. Matthew does a little more in honoring Christ as king, as we heard read this morning from Matthew chapter 2, and the wise men come and say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Luke's approach is more humble as he speaks of the birth of Christ in a main, or birth of Christ in probably a stable-like situation. But nonetheless, both are acknowledging that Jesus is king. It was the edict of a Persian king, Cyrus, in the Old Testament that accomplished the will and plan of God for the people of God to go back and build the temple. And it is the edict of a heathen king, Caesar Augustus, that accomplishes the redemptive plan of God and gets the Messiah where he needs to be just in the nick of time. Man, it's a fearful thing to be pregnant and not in the hospital. Of course, they were never in hospitals in that day, right? I love the story of the woman who uh, was going to deliver, and uh, she was quite embarrassed because she ended up delivering in the elevator. She barely got to the hospital and they got her in the elevator to get up the labor and delivery floor and, and the doctors were called on and they couldn't go any further. They stopped the elevator. She delivered her child. She was so embarrassed. The doctor said, don't worry. About two years ago, there was a woman who didn't even get in the hospital. She delivered out on the front lawn. This woman said, I know, that was me too. <laughs> Out of our five daughters, our last one was the most challenging. I was an hour and a half away. I broke some speed records in Pennsylvania getting home. We got to the hospital. They saw Nancy took her right up. They didn't even register. And by the time I got up there, there was another daughter. Mary's riding a donkey. Be careful for the bumps. And yet God was in control. Isn't that thrilling? God's in control of your life too. No matter what the bumps are. No matter what the edicts are. No matter what difficulties you have to face. God is with you. God is for you. And you can trust his perfect will. So there is an arrival Number one, this is the arrival into the city. 
They finally get to Bethlehem. And they do their registering thing. By the way, one Greek scholar, R.C. Lenski, says that the actual language that is used here expresses and designates time and seems to imply that they were in the city several days before the Christ child was born. I don't know that that is indeed a fact, but it seems to be the impression. And so maybe they did their registering thing, and, but they wanted to get settled, and so they go to the inn, and that's what we have here in the last part of verse 6. There was no room available for them. If you have the newest NIV, the translation reads, there was no guest room available for them. And that's because some idea, uh, some people have the idea that the place Christ was born was just in a guest room connected to a house, but a place where animals did stay. Traditionally, Christ was born in a cave. And the only indication we have that he was born in a stable-like situation is the fact that he was laid in a manger, which indeed was a feeding trough for animals. Once born, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, long strips of cloth, very Jewish. First the baby was washed and then salted and then wrapped tightly, hopefully to keep the bones strong and the body straight. That was normal. Being placed in a manger, that was abnormal. And so the king of kings and lord of lords, the greatest king of the world, is placed in the most humble of all places. But I love the scripture. Verse 6. And while they were there, who knows how many days, the time came. The edict came at the perfect time. The journey took the proper time. And now in the fullness of time. Remember that verse from Galatians chapter 4? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Predicted hundreds of years before, as we read in Micah. Micah chapter 5 is 700 years before the birth of Christ. In fact, established in the councils of eternity before anything was created was that Christ was coming in the fullness of time. Time is important to the ministry of Christ. When he lived on this earth and people wanted to kill him, what was his response? It's not my time. The hour has not yet come. God is in wonderful Complete control, but in the fullness of time, the baby is to be born. The little baby coming out like any other child did. (laughs) There was one theory, I don't know where this came from, but because Jesus is holy, and some people think Mary's more than just a human being, indeed she's highly favored, but they figured that Mary, being as holy as uh, as that could not give birth to a, a child in the normal way. So Jesus just kind of passed through the walls of the abdomen and boom, there he was. No, my friends, this was a normal birth as well as a divine birth because Jesus is the God-man. 
the little face grimacing, gasping for cold air to fill his lungs and piercing the night with his cry. I think Joseph is weeping because he has no better place for his son. By the way, they arrived to the city of Bethlehem and there was no room. But there's another point that needs to be made. This is their hometown and there was no hospitality. There's a slap in the face. And if their parents came with them, there appears to be no assistance. Talk about isolated and betrayed. But now this second arrival, the arrival of the child, is one of the most exciting things that will ever take place. I I think seeing Jesus... And all of the fulfillment of the prophecies, Mary pondered these things in her heart. She meditated long and hard to understand all that this would mean, understanding what it meant. And you and I need to ponder and think about the birth of Jesus Christ. But Mary could say, we're not helpless pawns caught in some type of movement in secular history, forced against our wills to come to a place where we don't want to be. No, God is behind this all. Our every move is orchestrated by an almighty hand of a favored father who is with us. And he is for us. And while the world did not see what was happening to Joseph and Mary, God was planning it every step of the way. Lucy Shaw said concerning the baby, weak he lies, who before with one word spoke the universe into existence. Sleep, whose eyelids had never closed before. The humble king born to be our Savior. We're talking about the providence of God, are we not? Not just for Christ coming into the world, but for us. What is the providence of God? Perhaps I, better, I could not better explain it than to read a portion of an old confession written hundreds of years ago called the Bel- Belgic Confession. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune. But he leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in the world without God's orderly arrangement. And yet, God is not the author of and cannot be charged with sin. For God's power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that God arranges and does his works very well and justly even when the devils and wicked work unjustly. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us with fatherly care. In this thought, we rest, 
knowing that God holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot but hurt cannot hurt us unless there is divine permission. Doesn't that sound like the book of Job? And so it is in all of life. Jesus Christ comes with power. And God is the one who oversees it all. So the decree of a heathen king was the work of a holy God. Read the daily newspapers and see the hand of God. He is not in the sin to author it, but he is in the activity to oversee it. Political reasons may drive this world, but divine forces are in control. And God controls history to the point where he guarantees that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The problem of pedigree solved. His parents are signed up as legitimate people from the house of David and that's where the Messiah is coming from. The problem of place taken care of. Jesus arrives in Bethlehem just as God has ordained. So we are not to be fearful. One of the last stanzas in Cowper's great song Says, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds we so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on our heads. Because God plants his footstep in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Praise God for the birth of Christ. Praise God for the providence of God. Let's pray. O King of heaven, glorious Lord, hear our prayer this morning. Teach us that in all our ways you are in control. Not to excuse sin or our failure. Not to excuse the misdeeds and wicked deeds of others. Not to make us complacent, but to make us content in your perfect will. And to acknowledge with the saints of old and Mary and Joseph, nothing is impossible with God. Help us to see that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.